So we're going to be talking about a, a subject this morning that is, um, is well known to everyone in this room, and it's the, it's the topic of failure, um, feelings of failure, the experience of failure. Um, and I'm not talking about failure on a small level in terms of failure where it doesn't matter, like you've failed at your golf game, or you failed to get an A in PE, or you failed to cook the turkey right. I'm talking about failure at a, a very important um, deep human level. Um, and it, it could be any number of things, failure in marriage or a failed marriage, um, failure as a father or failure as a mother, uh, a failure of integrity, uh, moral failure. Uh, everyone in this room is acquainted with this whole thing called failure. And how we deal with it is a... Is a Big difference between either going downhill or, or uphill. That is, oftentimes, failure. Uh, the threat of failure can create fear and keep us from doing things. Um, the experience of failure and the public shame and guilt that we feel as a result of it can lead to depression. It can lead to insecurity. Um, it, can, it can lead to a, an identity crisis where you really don't know who you are anymore because, because who am I in light of my failure? And a lot of that um, is a result of the fact that we um, often establish our sense of self or sense of importance or worth based upon um, how successful we are, kind of the opposite of, of failure. So that if, you know, we can say, hey, I've been married a long time and our kids are doing well and my finances are going well and my career is going well, but then it kind of gives us an inflated, like a helium balloon, almost makes us feel like... I'm, I, I, I matter, like, like I really am somebody, and, and I am important, and I am significant. But then a failure comes along, and, and then it's like the, like, like the pin to the balloon. It just, all of a sudden, there's massive deflation, and you find yourself um, really not knowing who you are, feeling unimportant, not feeling like you matter, not feeling significant. And that, unfortunately, is kind of what happens when we um, equate who we are with... Um, our successes or failures. It's just like this inflation, like a helium balloon, and then a failure comes along and you pop. And I think a lot of us can, can resonate with that rise and fall of the human spirit um, as a result of basing our sense of who we are, either on success or um, the lack of success in terms of failure. How are we as Christians supposed to, to um, get out of this cycle of, of feeling good when we're successful and feeling horrible or feeling like we're insignificant when we fail? Um, and I believe that there's, there's a, a different way of looking at failure um, that actually allows, it doesn't take away the pain of failure, um, but it allows us to see it in a different light and in, 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 a, in a, a rather strange way, even to give thanks to the Lord for, for how he works out his redemptive work amidst and in our, our failure. Now, in addition to there's a general rise and fall of success and failure, um, I would I would imagine within this room there are probably some who have failed in private ways and others who have failed maybe in some public ways where you carry around with you a sense of public shame wherever you go. It's like having a scarlet letter or, um, 
what I used last service was, you know, I grew up in the country, right, Newcastle, and, and we had chickens and all kinds of animals, and every once in a while, the dog would get into the chicken coop, and the dog would kill the chicken, and, and you know, the best way to cure a dog of, of chicken disease is that is the, the appetite for chickens, would you tie that dead chicken around its neck and make it, dra- make it drag around that dead, rotting carcass for a while. Now, I don't know that you can get away with that these days, of tying a chicken carcass to your dog because it killed one, <coughs> but... It worked, and just drug it around. And uh, I think sometimes that's how we, how we deal with the, the failure as well, is we, we continue to just have that um, wrapped around our neck, and we drag it wherever we go, and we can't seem to get rid of it. So I want to I look this morning at a different way of, of, of looking and processing uh, failure in a redemptive way, in a way that can lead to freedom rather than a way that can lead you to, to despair. And it's the life of, 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 of Peter. And the perspective that Jesus gives on the life of Peter. Uh, now, you, most of you know, Peter is probably Jesus' right-hand man. He was always in the inner three. Um, he's the only one who, um, who Jesus gave a, spe- a specific name to. Uh, his name is Simon, and at one point in the gospel, uh, Jesus says, your name, Simon, is, is now Peter, which means the rock, Petros. Now, how cool is that to have Jesus call you like the rock, Right? Like, uh, like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, just like powerful, strong. And, and uh, well, this rock, Peter, um, is going to forcefully declare to the Lord that he is willing to follow him even to the point of death. Like, I am in this all the way. And Jesus is going to take a pin and pop that self-inflated sense of his own strength. And by the time we get to the end of the story, we find the rock um, as nothing more than a bunch of saggy toast just falling apart so here's the it's an epic failure but in this failure um, we learn something that I think all of us uh, who are acquainted with failure um, ought to take to heart now I just want to say up front as a caveat um, in what I'm about to teach um, or what the Bible teaches is in no way an excuse for or a justification for or a license to fail morally it's not. It's just a way, but the, at the same, by the same token, by the fact that we're still broken people, Jesus hasn't come yet, we still are not in resurrected bodies, and we're still not perfected, we live in a broken world, we're broken people, so therefore we will fail. That's true for everybody in this room. So having given that little caveat, um, let's look at how failure is looked at um, by our Lord as it relates to Peter. Now, here's the story. In order to understand the text of verse 54 and following, we have to back up to verse 33. There Peter said to him, this is speaking to, to Jesus, said, Lord, I am ready to go with you. I can, you can sense almost his, like, Navy SEAL uh, attitude. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. <coughs> it's forceful. They should have put an exclamation mark at the end of that. <coughs> Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, rock, um, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, or excuse me, deny that you know me three times. So there's the forceful, listen, I'm going I'm, to, I will take this hill with you, and, and if I die trying, I'm going to be right by your side. Like, I'm going to be the rock, right? That's, that's the declaration. And Jesus turns around and, and pops his ego with a simple truth. You know, it's, it's, it's not just, it, it, there's a huge comparison here. 
Jesus is saying to Peter, listen, not only will you not go to prison for me, not only will you not die for me, you're not even going to be able to say you know me. Like, that's how bad you're going to blow it. And I'm a bit of reading between the lines at this point, but I'd be um, venture to say that Peter at this point is like, that's never going to happen. That ain't going to happen while I'm on, I'm on watch, you know? I'm the rock. I'm Peter. I'm going to stand by your side to the end. Well, Peter's wrong. Jesus is right, as we find out in the text of 54. This is the big epic failure. Then they seized him, that is the guards that came out to arrest Jesus. They came, excuse me, they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into a high, the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Uh, then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the, in the light, looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. <laughs> And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean, probably had an accent. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, you can picture the scene. It's nighttime, probably early, middle spring. It's it's, it's cold out. Um, He follows the, the guards and Jesus at a distance, and he finds his way into the court of the high priest, um, where they have a fire going, and, and the court of the high priest would probably be populated with people who, for all practical purposes, were enemies of Jesus. And so he nuzzles up next to the fire to keep warm and trying to keep uh, inconspicuous. And then this, this sl- servant or slave girl looks at him and goes, wait, wait a second, I know you? And three times, of course, and, 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 and all three times, uh, Peter says, no, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And the, the interesting part um, that's unique to Luke is that it tells us what happens after the third time that he denies him and he instantly hears the rooster crow that, that, that reminds him. It says that the Lord looked at him. Somehow, between the courtyard and the complex where Jesus was imprisoned or maybe he was being brought through the court, there's this moment where Jesus overheard Peter denying him. And at that moment, they looked at each other. Now, they say that the, the, the eyes are the window of the soul. You know, and you can tell a lot about a person and their state by just looking into their eyes. You can tell if somebody's sad. You can tell if somebody's mad. You can tell if somebody's being romantic. You can tell if somebody's joyful. And you can tell when somebody's heartbroken. Now, the text doesn't tell us the exchange in their gazes or what Peter saw in his Lord's face. But I would, I would venture to guess that there was a sadness that Jesus had, a grief that his right-hand man, the rock, couldn't even bring himself to say, I know Jesus. That was a, um, that's a huge blow. And as a result of this, he went out and wept bitterly. He was just at the end of himself. Now, what I want to point out about this failure is this is a major failure. This is a major moral failure. Um, and that was one of the things, by the way, that I, I find so um, 
self-authenticating about the Bible is that it paints some of its greatest heroes with the darkest brushes of King David, you know, the one who's held that up in the entire Old Testament as a model of faith is also the one who commits adultery and conspires to commit murder. And here you have Peter, the rock, um, who is being described in dark colors. He has is, he is failed. He has failed in, in word. He made a promise that he didn't keep. Therefore, he failed in integrity. He failed in loyalty. He failed in devotion. He failed in worship. He failed in love. This is failure. And it's damnable failure. <clears throat> Jesus himself taught explicitly, listen, if you deny that you know me to men, I will deny that I know you before God. So this is a specifically a damnable offense. So in the, in the worst way, if you will, Peter's failed. He's, he's in a manure pile of guilt, right? Epic failure. It's been written about in all four Gospels, which means people for at least 2,000 years now have been reading about his failure. How would you like that kind of public publicity? It's like cycling through the newspaper every day, right? Because it's in the Bible. Now, that's the dark side. Failure is failure. Sin is sin. And sin and failure damage. And damage in negative and evil ways. But we can't leave the story there. At least not to understand how God in his grace and goodness works through failure and evil and brings about something only he can bring, and that is redemption. If you, now, what I want to do, that's the epic failure, right? Epic guilt. I hope if any of you have ever really blown it, recognize that the, I mean, the ringleader of the disciples blew it big time. What I want to do now is I want to rewind from this event. He's just blown it. He's weeping. Now let's rewind in the text back to a different verse. Still in chapter 22. And here's the verse. And these are, these are words that Jesus gives to him before he even fails epically. He says, Simon, Simon. That repeats it twice because Simon or Peter is a, a beloved friend. Affection. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again... Even right here, he already knows he's going downhill first. He's going to go face plant morally. After you've returned again, strengthen your brothers. This is a, a, a rich two verses as it relates to understanding failure in a true believer's life. Now, notice I said true believer. Um, Judas, we're told, was a, a thief from the beginning. And there's no evidence that he ever truly believed. This was a superficial adherence to Jesus, um, that his heart had not truly tasted um, of who Christ was. Peter, however, a different story. He, he did have faith. Um, he had tasted that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, and Jesus said, the Spirit revealed that to you. In other words, he's opened your eyes. So what I'm about to say applies to the true believer who's had truly born again, who's had Christ recreate your heart and give you a new heart. You'll notice the, the first thing he says to, uh, to, to Peter is that Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. You know, the prince of the power of the air, 
the, um, the dark lord of all, all the principalities and powers. He's asked for you by name because he wants to bring you down. And the sense of the language in the original is that that decision has already been made and that Peter has been, if you will, in a manner of speaking, handed over. Almost like Job. If you've read the first opening chapters of Job, same thing. Um, demons come to the throne of God and, and he's, Satan says, hey, that person, Job, I want access to him. And the Lord says, okay, but then gives specific limitations as to what he cannot hurt. As a side note to this, you recognize that God does allow the devil and evil to um, influence and even attack his people. But in terms of the true believer, every time he allows it, he allows it with specific good and loving ends and purposes for that believer. That's a side note. But notice the text. Um, that he might sift you like wheat. I don't know if you've ever, mom ever had a sifter, you know? My mom is a Betty Crocker cook person, right? Betty Crocker cookbook, and so she had a sifter. And I used to love playing with it as a kid. I even, I don't think I ever told her I, I did dirt with it one time, but <laughs> just can't believe I just said that. Anyway, um, I, she put the flour in. You know what it's supposed to do? It's, it's not so much supposed to get the chaff away from the, the flour. It's just that there are clumps and, and things in your flour that, that make it harder to cook with. And so she'd stick the flour in the top part, and it, it would either break up. You know, it has these blades that, that twirl around over a, a wire mesh, and it would cause um, those clumps to break or it would weed them out. So the, here's the idea is that what goes in the top comes out better on the bottom through the sifting process, right? The sifting mechanism for Peter was his failure. The sifting personality was the devil himself. But the idea is what goes in the top comes out better on the bottom. Or to put it in terms of a principle... That God allows failure in your life, and in this case, to break pride and teach humility. To break pride and to teach humility. It's pretty obvious that what Peter had an issue with was a bit of an ego pride complex. Like, I am the rock, and Jesus, I am going to take this hill with you, and I'll go to prison, and I will die right alongside you, because that's the kind of man I am. I'm going to man up right next to you, and I will, you know. Take on the enemy, forces of darkness. Well, that kind of confidence in your own flesh, confidence in your own steel resolve or your own manhood to make things happen um, is the, the wrong place to find one's strength in the Scripture. Um, it comes from a very self-centered and humanistic and um, pride-laden heart. Well, we know from Scripture that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in, a, in, a, in a, kind of an irony here, um, what you don't realize is that the true failure of Peter isn't his denial, but it's his pride. And this, this failure just like breaks him down. His fiction as to what he believed about himself comes shattering to the ground, and he's left with nothing. And that's, that's one of the ways that God uses failure in our lives to, to form us and to teach us. 
or, or the way I was thinking about it that, this last week is, is um, until pride lets go, grace will not flow in your life. You, 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 uh, you're not that usable in a proud and arrogant state. And so God does a good but hard and painful thing by allowing Peter to fail. But what's going to come out the other side is a lot better than what went in. Have you ever thought of your failure that way? Just recognize that, wow, we tend to just react and self-absorb about failure and, and you know, uh, carry around that chicken, rotting chicken carcass, thinking that somehow if we just feel bad enough about it, that somehow we'll pay off our debt and feel good about ourselves. And, and um, that, that, that's not how God would have us look at it, is to recognize, okay, I screwed up. Um, and then to recognize, okay, God, you are going to do something in my life, even though it's painful. I, I know I needed this. And how many of you have, have failed in the past, and you look back now, and you're like, you know what? I, I, I wouldn't be where I'm at if I, I didn't. I mean, God just really broke me down in a way to build me up in a different way. That's the truth, right? Um, by the way, that implies that when you do fail, you have to take ownership for it. The minute you begin to justify, deny, or blame other people, that's not humility. That's just another manifestation of self-centeredness and pride. It's like, well, I wouldn't have done that if. Now, now you're saying that you're somehow a better person if that person hadn't done this. So in, in, in effect, you're shifting blame, and you're not really owning up to it. So that's, that's, that's part of the lesson to be learned is full ownership. Just being able to say, listen, I, I screwed up. I denied you, Jesus. There's no getting around this. And, um, and, and then asking forgiveness. But that's humility. That's what God does in allowing failures into our lives. He allows you to fail in order to break pride and teach humility. Two. Second phrase in verse 32 Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That is, God is going to be faithful, Peter, to preserve your faith in the midst of your failure. I have prayed for you that your faith wouldn't ultimately crack. You see, here's like Satan in verse 30, is it 31, demanding to have Peter. And Jesus in verse 32 saying, but I prayed for you that ultimately, no matter how much damage is done, um, that your faith will not crack. It will, it, it will be supplied with, with uh, strength. Um, and that, that, that strength of, of faith will not come from you, Peter. It's going to come from grace because I prayed for it. But you notice Jesus is the means. It's interesting. Jesus is the means by which Peter's faith um, survives and perseveres and um, endures in light of, of, of his failure. It's interesting to stop and realize that, that what Jesus does here in terms of intercession, as intercession is a prayer for somebody else, praying to God on behalf of somebody else. Here he prays to God. I know he is God, but he also is a second member of the Trinity, so he prays to God as uh, an intercessor for Peter. He does the same thing for you and me. We're told in the book of Hebrews that he's our great high priest, and he intercedes for us. And, and if, if, if he stopped doing that, our faith would cease to exist. And for each moment that you find yourself in uh, failing, whatever that looks like, and to realize that you still believe, you still trust, 
You still come back, you still get back on the horse, not by your own strength, but because God's drawing you back up on top of the horse, um, is proof that Jesus is pleading to the Father, preserve his faith, that you believe because there's someone who's far more powerful and good than you are who's saying, Dan Deckard, if, <laughs> if you don't do something, Father, about his faith, it's going to fail. So I'm praying for his faith. And that's the only reason, actually, at the end of the day, you can say you really believe is because you were sustained by the grace of God to trust. True faith always gets back up. Always, I still come back to the center, back to Christ, back to the gospel to recognize that his love is big enough and vast enough to hold you, preserve you, and forgive you. And number three, last part, when, uh, when Peter says, excuse me, Jesus, and when you have turned again, it's like, that's restoration, that you are going to be restored, you're going to fail miserably. You're going to be humbled in the process, which is going to be fantastic. And I'm going to preserve your, your faith in the middle of it. And you will be restored. You are going to turn again. And look at the next part. He says, what, he tells him what to do afterwards. Strengthen your brothers. Now he has ministry to do after his failure. <laughs> how does that work? How, how does a failure, a person who has failed, Peter, strengthen other failures? The, the, the other disciples, the other ten, they've also failed. They're living in a, if you will, a manure pile of, of guilt, shame. Um, they may not have denied Jesus like Peter did, but they, just, they, 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 still, they still abandon him. So how does a failure, a person who has failed, who's recognized, I'm, I am not that strong, I am not that moral, um, I am not that good. That's the hump, humility. Strengthen somebody else who comes to the recognition, I am not that good, I am not that moral, and I am not that strong. Well, it seems to me that the way, and this is biblical as well, is we always draw people back to the heart of the gospel. That is, yes, did you ever stop forgetting that you're a sinner, that you still sin? And that grace, no matter how great our sin is, is greater than our sin. And we can always run back to it. It's, it, it you, you can't outrun it. You can't exhaust it enough. Now, as I said, this is not a license or an excuse for damaging moral failure. But no matter what the moral failure is, God's grace is still bigger. And to truly know the costliness of that grace and what it would take um, itself changes your whole heart towards failure. And you find strength that comes from a different place. It doesn't come from manning up and being the rock and, and trying to project an image of yourself that's strong. It comes from the simple fact that you know that you're loved by God. You're loved by God. He says, go strengthen your brothers. It's, it, we tend to think that um, we teach out of our successes. Like if you're successful, then you can teach. But there's a lot of teaching that comes through failure, too. That's really important for us. Uh, Peter will go to his disciple friends and say, listen, I blew it big time, but um, 
the Lord has seen fit by the immensity of his grace to forgive me and include me. So if his grace is big enough for me, it's big enough for you. And that's, that's encouraging. That strengthens us. Um, to be able to say, listen, I'm not all that in a bag of chips. I'm not that strong. I'm not that good. I'm not that moral. But I'll tell you someone who is. And in that moment, this is what happens when you're able to teach through failure. Is you diminish yourself as the hero and you exalt God as the hero. Remember thinking my, my oldest, this is years ago now. Uh, I have a lot more recent failures, but this is old enough. Um, you know, he said, I, I, I got upset at him. I, I lost my temper, and I said things I shouldn't have said. And the reason I know that is because, one, I felt bad, and, two, my wife told me I did. So <laughs> that right there is convicting. You got the Holy Spirit in your wife, and it's right there. And uh, at first I resisted. It's like, well, I was justified what I said. And, um, and uh, after a little battle with myself, I'm like, okay. I gotta actually like I have to actually apologize and ask forgiveness for my like five or six year old, and uh, and uh, I remember kneeling down and just saying, "Hey, buddy, um, you know I shouldn't have said what I said, and uh, I sinned, uh, lost my temper. Will you forgive me?" Of course, he forgave me, but in that moment, I, I was also able to say, "Listen, you need to understand something about your dad. Um, your dad is a sinner, just like you." And I'm in need of God's grace. In that moment, I'm sure the way my son thought of me as the hero was diminished a bit. Maybe a lot. But in that moment, the grace of God was exalted and God becomes the hero. And that, in, 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 that is really how, in our failures, we point to the grace of God. Um, and we diminish self so that he and his grace and his love and his gospel can be exalted. So this is a totally different way of, maybe you have this perspective, but a different way of, 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 of grappling with and struggling through your own failures, whatever they might be, of recognizing that God does have a design for them. He doesn't excuse the sin, but he does have a design to do something in your soul, as something that needs to happen, and something at the end of the day is beautiful, but that he is faithful to sustain you through those, those things, and he will restore and actually benefit others in some mysterious, strange way through your failure as you diminish your self-importance and you exalt the importance and the supremacy of grace. So I, I, I hope you can take this perspective and just kind of look back over your life and those things that maybe you're still holding on to. You're able to say, listen, God was good in this. Even though I did evil, God was good in this. And for that, I can give thanks. And for that, I can rejoice. And if you're one of those people that, you know, you, maybe you've sinned in a rather public way and you feel like you have, you're a pariah um, and you have that rotting carcass everywhere you go, you have to remember that someone came and took that carcass off of your neck and put it on his own. And then he got rid of it. So if he got rid of it, you shouldn't carry it anymore. And you should stand in the full light of God's forgiveness and redemption, knowing that you are a son and a daughter of God. You're not a pariah anymore. And I hope that God, by his grace, would release that, maybe this morning, for you, if that's, if that's your life. Either way, brothers and sisters, we have no reason not to hope, um, even in the midst of failures, because it's part of how God works in our lives. Amen?
Oh, Lord, I, I, you love this family here, and you know where hearts are. You know what's done in private and what's done in public, and you know the strength right now that's necessary for us to actually open our hands and, and lift our failures and our failings up to you and, and just release them to you and to your love and to know in return that you've loved us, you have paid for it in full, and that you're right now in this time, in this place, you are using things, our own failures, to do good things that only you can do. Lord, I pray that you would complete that work, um, that you would finish that work that you've begun and allow us to live in hope that, um, that all things truly do, all things work together for the good of those who are called and love you. In Christ's name, amen.